Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week in our podcast, I'm delighted to welcome the Reverend James Martin, Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of America Magazine, consultant to the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication, and author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestseller, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. It really is a Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, that book. His new book is called Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle. Advent is really about hope. I had a Jesuit friend who used to say, Advent is about desire, which I like, the desire for the coming of God into our lives. Um, but I, I think Advent is really about hope. Um, you know, we have the, the hope of the people of Israel waiting for the Messiah. And we have our hope, too, you know, that God is going to come and help us. Uh, we are people of, of hope. So I think it's, it, it refocuses us. All the, all the readings from the book of Isaiah are about the dry land blooming. And it's a, you know, we believe in a God of surprises and a God for whom nothing is impossible. Father Jim joins us this week to talk about his new book, A Big Vatican Meeting He Took Part In this fall, and how he stays centered during a tumultuous time in our world, which is a great Advent question for him. So, Father Jim, I'll call you Brother Jim, too. (laughs) Welcome to the Soul of the Nation. Thank you, Jim, and we can call one another Jim. (laughs) Uh, We know each other well enough. It's an honor to be with you, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Okay, we'll go with Jim, Jim and Jim. So one question I often like to ask my guests, and you can feel free to take this in any direction you'd like, is how is your spirit these days? Jim, how is your spirit these days? Yeah, I would say kind of tired, uh, like my body is. Uh, I find the uh, violence going on uh, all over the world, especially uh, in Israel, really uh, difficult. Uh, Also, as you said, I was uh, at the Synod meeting in Rome, which was lovely and uh, really exciting, but, but pretty uh, kind of exhausting. So I'm, I'm really looking, I, I'm looking forward to Christmas and I'm enjoying Advent because the readings, as you know, are just so uh, joyful and really kind of fill my soul up. But uh, so I think I'll be a little less tired uh, after Christmas. Well, it's always, Christmas is always my favorite season every year. And Advent is really, I think, a time for us to rest and renew and prepare for 2024, which is going to be uh, quite a year coming up ahead of us. So your new book, Come Forth, I love that title, is about the biblical story of Jesus and Lazarus. What made you want to focus on that story in particular, which you call Jesus' greatest miracle? Well, I when I was a young, I would say a teenager, uh, I saw on TV, as probably you did and everyone uh, around anywhere around our age, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Franco Zeffirelli miniseries. I'm sure you remember that one. Yep. Uh, used to air every year on Christmas and Easter on how times have changed on the networks. And it was the story of the raising of Lazarus that for me was kind of the undisputed dramatic high point of that. And it really, it just, imp- yeah, you remember it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> it, uh, it really just imprinted itself on me, made me wonder who is this guy? Uh, and then about 10 years ago when I was in the Holy Land, I was able to visit Lazarus's tomb, uh, which is in uh, current-day Bethany, a town called Al-Azariah uh, in Palestinian territory. And that made an impression on me as well. And then I, I started to give uh, pilgrimages. 
and have led people into that tomb. And it's really been very powerful for them. And so all those things uh, made me think, you know, uh, this is really a story that I need to tell. It's really a story about letting go of anything that keeps you bound and, you know, really walking into the light. So that that was kind of the the, the fundamental um, kind of theme of the book, but but it was it was all those things that made me want to write about this beautiful gospel story. So ever since you were a teenager, your focus was on this story in particular. The Bible quotes Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, as telling Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. That suggests a deep relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. What else, if anything, do we know about this guy, Lazarus? Well, that's a good question. And I, I look at that in the book. Uh, as you say, they say, he whom you love is ill. They don't say, Lazarus, our brother, or Lazarus, your disciple, or even what you would expect people in biblical times to say, Lazarus of Bethany. But they say, he whom you love. So Jesus must have been very close with him. Um, we know that he existed. We know that he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. But we probably know a little bit more about Mary and Martha because they also appear in other gospel stories. Um, what, we, what we can take away is that, that Jesus spent a lot of time at their house, you know, probably resting from all the demands of, uh, you know, his, his public ministry. So it was, a, it was a friendly household, even you think a restful household with friends for him, for Jesus. Yeah, I, I think of it as a place of respite. Um, Bethany is not too far outside of Jerusalem, and he was in Jerusalem a lot, uh, as we know from the Gospels. And so this was clearly a place where he went to relax. And there is a story in the Gospel of Luke, as you know, uh, where he shows up at uh, Martha's house, by the way, interestingly, not called Lazarus's house, but Martha's house. And uh, and they're, they're hosting him. And actually, that's where Martha complains that her sister's not doing a lot of work. Um, so, you know, funny enough, Jim, uh, that also shows, you know, Martha complains very bluntly, as you know, to Jesus, you know, tell her to help me. It also shows that she's comfortable enough with him to be honest with him. So they must have had a pretty close and intimate relationship. So a special place for Jesus uh, in his life and ministry. The raising of Lazarus was not without risk for Jesus. His apostles warned him. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. What does this tell us about the risks we should be willing to take to help others? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, Jesus does uh, risk stoning or possible stoning. Um, and certainly uh, he probably knows that this, this sort of dramatic miracle is going to, which it does, lead to his own uh, crucifixion. It shows us uh, Jesus's uh, friendship with Lazarus. And again, it shows us, as you, as you said in that question, um, what we need to do for friends. And it's sometimes taking risks. It's sometimes um, doing things that we think are going to be difficult. I know you do a lot of work in, uh, in justice circles. Uh, and I often say to people, uh, you know, reaching out to refugees and migrants and people on the margins, you know, involves risk. And that's okay. And Jesus took risks. And that doesn't mean that we, we should shy away from them, you know, anymore. I think the risk is often not part of this story, and it was real, uh, as as you just, just said. It's interesting that both Mary and Martha, who both loved Jesus and were close enough to him, uh, to gently, they chided him, saying if he had been there, if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Jesus had been told that Lazarus was sick, but he did not exactly hurry back. He stayed where he was for two days. Then the Bible tells us that Jesus saw the grief of Lazarus' family, and he actually wept. This is the only record of Jesus crying, I think. Uh, what does that tell us about Jesus, that he cried over this? Why did he cry over this? 
Well, another good question. And I talk about that. I spend a whole chapter on that because most of us think, you know, as, as you said, one of the most famous gospel passages and, you know, often see, seen as one of the shortest passages in the Bible, Jesus wept, uh, is a sign of his humanity, definitely, that, that he's a human being, that he is not sort of uh, without emotion. Uh, he's not this kind of cool, cold, aloof God in some way. But uh, when you look at the Greek, the original language that the Gospels were written in, uh, you see that it's more than sadness. And in fact, the Greek words that are used uh, are words that convey frustration and anger. And so a lot of New Testament scholars say that it is not just sadness over the death of his friend, but a kind of, a kind of anger uh, or frustration at, at maybe uh, the reality of death, but probably since it's John's Gospel, uh, people's lack of belief. But, uh, but I think the, the, overall, the overall import is that you know, Jesus is human. I mean, fully human and fully divine, but we tend to downplay the human part uh, too much. Well, your Jesus book, uh, which I mentioned before, is right behind me on my shelf in my home st study. And I, I just always recommend that as you want to read a book about Jesus. This is the one. Thank you. By, by Jim Martin. So the raising of Lazarus caused Jesus a good deal of trouble. <laughs> and some think likely hastened his death after hearing the story chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin who said that, quote, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then Jesus went out to retreat in the wilderness, but as we know, he was crucified not long after. Right, and it, it, it does lead to his uh, crucifixion, as you point out. And interestingly, Jim, there's a uh, there's a kind of pattern of uh, death, life, death, life. So Lazarus's death, um, you know, which prompts the sister to contact Jesus or send message to him, leads to new life. Uh, and then this new life, Lazarus's new life, leads to Jesus's death, you know, which, of course, leads to his new life during the resurrection. Um, so it's a it's a really important story. It comes in the middle of the Gospel of John. And it is, as you were saying, what sets in motion uh, the crucifixion in, in John's Gospel. So this, this story, as you tell it, is about uh, choices we have to make. And Lazarus came forth. But um, say more about what you mentioned earlier, what his coming forth meant and the choice he made even to, to come forward and how that relates to the, the choices that we, we all make uh, sometimes not to come forth, not to stand up, not to... Not to uh, or to stay comfortable in the tomb, perhaps. Well, that's right. And that's a great way of looking at it. Um, you know, I think this story is more than a story that happened to some guy 2000 years ago that we believe in, right? That we say, you know, we, I believe that Jesus uh, called Lazarus from the tomb. Uh, I think in our lives, uh, it, it asks us to leave behind um, whatever things that are in our lives, let's say uh, unhealthy patterns of behavior, you know, laziness, uh, cruelty, uh, addictions, um, a desire not to help people, a desire to stay behind, you know, anything you can think of that prevents you from following God more closely, to leave those things behind, to let them die, right? This is kind of dying to self, uh, and to hear God's voice uh, calling us forth. And you're right, it, it requires a response, right? So I think really every moment of our day, maybe not every moment, but every day, we are asked to let things go that are, you know, sinful or limitations or failings uh, or unhealthy ways of living. And hear God saying, look, I'm calling you into new life, into a new way of being, uh, and to say yes to that and to come out of those tombs. And so the, the story really has a tremendous amount of um, import for us today in the 21st century. 
And sometimes we'd rather stay sleeping in our tombs or sleeping in our ways of death. Well, I think I think that's right. And, you know, you do a lot of work with that. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the, the wonderful work that you do uh, is to invite people uh, into a world of action and justice and peace. Right. And to say, look, this is part of your responsibility. And it may seem more comfortable to be in the tomb. Right. But the, the life uh, is outside of the tomb. Well, you mentioned this before, but let's go deeper into this now given that Lazarus lived, as you say, in Bethany, which is in the West Bank territory, is now home to Palestinians. Does this story have anything to do with or teach us about this fraught political moment the world is in, so divided about the horrific conflict between Israel and Hamas, so much suffering, so much death, and, and such difficult conversations that I know you and I are both in uh, what what does this have to teach us about this moment that we're in right now? Well, you know, I finished the book before um, October 7th and before the current, uh, you know, conflict. But of course, this conflict has been going on for, for decades. And w- one of the things I try to do in the book is, uh, you know, describe a bit uh, of what it's like to go into Palestinian territory, because most people don't know what that is like, you know, kind of the poverty that one sees the separation wall or the security wall, depending on which side of the wall you're on. But I also talk about um, uh, anti-Semitism in in the world and in the Catholic Church and in the Christian churches, uh, because that comes up in John's Gospel. You you mentioned, you know, the Jews do this, the Jews do that. Uh, Most scripture scholars put that in quotes these days because of the the antipathy in John's Gospel towards the Jews. So I try to let the reader uh, come to his or her own decisions about, uh, you know, the current situation. But I think for me, you know, it's interesting, Jim, it's the current day um, sort of setup of the tomb or the current day reality of the tomb. The tomb of Lazarus, you know, a deeply important part of Christian uh, spirituality, is in Al-Azariah, this Palestinian town. Uh, the, the key for the tomb is held by a Muslim man who holds a who, who owns a shop across the way. And so it's a it's a sign of uh, Christian devotion in the middle of this, you know, Muslim town. And I for me, it's a kind of a sign of of cooperation and people being able to live with one another. So, so the story, uh, you know, the, the, the story works on two levels It you know, it tells us something about the past, but it also, you know, when you go there today, the, the actual milieu of, of the tomb tells us something about how people can coexist. Right. So I think it's kind of a hopeful place. So a Muslim man with a shop shop across the way has the key to the tomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you go, you, you drop by and say, hey, can you open up the tomb, uh, which is right next to a it's right next to a church, the Church of St. Lazarus. Uh, it's an extraordinary place. And, you know, Jim, um, you know, your reader, your listeners may not know this, but, uh, you know, not many people go to that uh, holy site uh, because it's in Palestinian territory it's behind the wall. Um, but I think it's a really important part of uh, the Christian story. But also it's, it's important to you know, to, to, to see what, what is what is in Palestinian territory, what that's really like. And there's, uh, you mentioned anti-Semitism and also the Islamophobia that's going all around and, and how it's just dividing uh, longtime friends and allies where, where people can't, the deep sorrows on each side don't connect with so many people. And the truths that we need to hear don't connect. Yeah, and it's such a surprise to me that when there's, it's so rare to read a nuanced article that says, as you say um, very well, the deep sorrows on both sides. You know, the Palestinian people have suffered intensely, and if you go into Palestinian territory in Bethany or Bethlehem, you'll see this—just the poverty and 
and the isolation. Uh, and the Jewish people have suffered, you know, intensely, you know, for centuries, uh, you know, in the Middle East. And so it's it's a group of two suffering communities. Um, unfortunately, you know, parts of them at each other's throats right now. And the terrible combination of occupation on the one hand and terrorism as a response on the other hand. So Absolutely. Well, shifting gears a bit, uh, you participated in a big meeting of Catholic leaders convened by Pope Francis at the Vatican in October. And during that month-long meeting, you and other Catholic leaders as cardinals, bishops, priests, nuns, and lay people uh, discussed some of the key issues challenging the church today. Why did Pope Francis call this meeting, do you think? What was he trying to accomplish? And did the meeting, officially called the, the Synod on Synodality, did it achieve those goals, do you think? Well, Pope Francis called it, I think, for two reasons. It is the probably the largest consultative gathering. Uh, this was uh, the, the entire church was asked to take part. Uh, he, he convoked it in uh, 2021, and there have been kind of uh, meetings on the local level. And then this was the first uh, in-person meeting, about 350 delegates. And I think the two reasons are, as you said, Jim, uh, one, to look at issues you know, concerning the good of the church, uh, women's roles, uh, lay participation, all sorts of things, governance questions, but also in a sense to set up this new way of helping the church to discern and, ma and make decisions. So as you pointed out, um, readers this might have, uh, listeners might not have heard this, but this is the first time that, uh, you know, what we were called non-bishops were participating and had a vote. So of the 350 members, about 75% were bishops, but then there were priests, members of religious orders, and crucially, lay men and lay women you know, who had a vote. And so it was not only to look at this, these issues, but also to set up for the church a new way of, of making decisions and governing. Uh, was it successful? I think it was because we, we started to talk about issues for the first time in this kind of universal way. The Synod, however, is only kind of halfway through. Um, we had one session this October, and then God willing, next October, we'll come back. Having sort of established uh, relationships and made friendships and you know, it'd be easier, I think, to talk about things uh, next year now that we know one another. But I, I think it was very successful. So as you point out, when you talked about what happened there, it's interesting. It's about who's at the table and who gets to vote. <laughs> so normally it's the bishops at the table and they're the ones that went voting. This time, the table was widened. It was a broader table. And people, even lay people, were, were given this right to vote on things. Yeah. And you know what, Jim, literally at the table. So unlike other meetings where it's a big auditorium and someone stands up at a podium and talks, we were at 35 round tables of 12 people each. And it was really powerful. And uh, just very briefly, um, you know, cardinals, archbishops, bishops, but priests and lay people and, you know, mothers and fathers. And we would have three rounds of discussion. The first two rounds, uh, the first round, people would go around and comment on a particular topic. And they had four minutes where no one could interrupt them. And then this, yes. And then the second round was another, everyone had four minutes of sort of reflecting on what people had said, sans interruptions. And then the third round, yeah. And then the third round was kind of back and forth. And then we summarized things and presented it to the plenary session. But, you know, really uh, th this was a time when, you know, the Cardinal Archbishop of whatever, you know, would be listening and would have to listen to some, you know, 22-year-old college student talking about her vision of the church. So it's really extraordinary. And um, yeah, one of my favorite quotes, which happened at, at uh, one of my tables, 
uh, you know, and people were listening, but I think that the tendency is to, you know, sort of jump in and talk over people, not in a rude way, but just because they want to kind of, you know, put their two cents in. And at one of my tables, one of the facilitators said to a cardinal, your eminence, I'm sorry, she's, she's not done yet. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> your eminence, she's not. That's a quote for the future of the Catholic Church. Your eminence, she's not done yet. Yeah, and you know that's 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 a kind of new way of being for everyone. So, uh, as I said, the, the the first session was in October. The second session will be next year, and I think we'll be able to kind of get get down to more brass tacks next year. Well, just the description of the tables of cardinals and bishops at the same tables as sisters and lay people, just that image of that is very powerful. It is. And, you know, I, I think that the, you know, if, if people have seen pictures of it, they can just Google it on, online. To see that image, Jim, for, for me, was the message of the Synod. The message of the Synod was, was not so much the report that we did at the end, which, you know, it's, it's very important. It is, you know, as you know, you know, Jesus teaches with, with words and deeds, and we teach with images. It is that image of uh, people sitting around the tables. And if I can share one more thing, um, you know, at different points, there would be someone presiding over the meeting, which would basically be like, okay, next we're going to hear from Jim Wallace. Next we'll hear from Jim Martin, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, this person was seated at the head table where the Pope was. And one morning, one of the cardinals said to me, do you realize what's happening? Uh, and it was a woman who was running the meeting. She was kind of the, um, you know, kind of managing the meeting. This cardinal said to me, we're in the Vatican and we're at a meeting where the Pope is present and a woman is running the meeting. Which I just thought was great. That's a vision for the future, right there. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the second meeting next October. Uh, many people, as you well know, were disappointed that the official document produced by the Senate did not include any explicit mentions of LGBTQ people. Though you and others have said it was discussed during the during the session. So. Why wasn't that reflected in the final document? And do you have hopes that it will be addressed more directly, perhaps, during the next Synod next October? Yeah, good question. So there were really two approaches at the Synod. And I think uh, the best way of looking at this uh, is imagining like someone coming out to their family. It's usually very dramatic and initially maybe hard to talk about. And this was the first meeting that that was really talked about in a kind of universal way. So the one approach was focusing on people and individuals, and this was my approach, bringing in stories of LGBT people. The other approach, you know, uh, I would say mainly, but not exclusively from the global south, is to see it as a kind of ideology or neocolonialism. And even the term LGBT was really uh, sort of uh, disputed. In the final document, um, there are paragraphs that are very open and very forward thinking um, that talk about sexuality and identity as things to think about, to think about a new anthropology, to ask for more theologians to reflect. But uh, the framers felt, you know, that if they use the term LGBT, that would be completely eliminated, you know, all those paragraphs. So they decided not to use the term. Uh, you know, I was disappointed, but I understand what they were trying to do to kind of make it, you know, something that everybody could could agree on. I think, you know, it's interesting, Jim, I'm not sure how much of it will be discussed next year. But the great thing is, look, the topic is on the table. The topic's on the table. Uh, people can't ignore it. And also, I would say in the space of a month, um, Pope Francis met with me, uh, a woman named who I know, you know, Sister Janine Gramick uh, from New Ways Ministry, and then representatives from the Global Network of Rainbow Catholics, uh, a big kind of umbrella group. That's in one month. And so, you know, there's the synod that's going on, but there's also other stuff going on in the church that I think is moving this ahead. 
there's even a way that the phrase, the Lazarus phrase, uh, come forth, coming out is connected to. Well, yeah, you know, in, in fact, as you know, the, the, the literal translation of what Jesus says in the Greek, uh, Lazare duro exo, is Lazarus come out. But uh, I talk about that, that in the book, and I say, if I had given my LGBT work, if I had called the book come out, I think people would have thought it was about something different. Well, uh, if anybody were to ask me, who would you like to talk to during Advent? Uh, you would be right there on my list. And so here we are today, uh, and we are, of course, recording this podcast in the Christian season of Advent. So I wanted to ask you, with everything going on in the world, war is raging in Ukraine and the Middle East, with democracy literally at stake in the next U.S. election, and then all the stresses of the Christmas season, everyone rushing around trying to buy the perfect presents and the perfect Christmas card. How do you approach Advent? How do you stay spiritually centered with so much happening in the world and in our lives? Another great question. I would say, uh, you know, spiritually centered in the world is by remembering that Advent is really about hope. I had a Jesuit friend who used to say Advent is about desire, which I like, the desire for the coming of God into our lives. Um, but I, I think Advent is really about hope. Um, you know, we have the, the hope of the people of Israel waiting for the Messiah. And we have our hope, too, you know, that God is going to come and help us. Uh, we are people of, of hope. So I think it's it, it refocuses us. All the all the readings from the book of Isaiah are about the dry land blooming. And it's a you know, we believe in a God of surprises and a God for whom nothing is impossible. Um, so but now on a personal level, like, you know, which might be harder for some people, you know, how do you kind of stay Send it at Christmas and during the Advent season. I always say do less. That that's my advice to people. So one less Christmas party, you know, a few less Christmas cards, a few fewer Christmas cards, fewer gifts, fewer uh, events. I think to give yourself the time to relax, to be calm, to pray, to read some of the readings, and not go nuts because. As you know, uh, you know, some people by the end of the Christmas season are just miserable because they've been rushing around and shopping. Now, look, I'm not taking away from the, the value of giving gifts, and it's beautiful, especially if you're in a family and you have young kids, it's it's necessary, right? But I do think that we we tend to burden ourselves with a lot of shoulds uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, my uh, my old uh, spiritual director used to call it shoulding all over yourself, S-H-O-U-D. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wise spiritual director. Yes. You know, I'm recalling a whole lot of pastors have told me that the Christmas season is their hardest time being pastors because so much people, so much they feel their losses, their their fears, uh, their anxieties, their 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 family breaches, their family conflicts, and pastors just just are are pressed by all the demands of their parishioners during Advent, especially they always tell me. Well, yeah, I mean, in addition to all the liturgical things they have to do, Christmas Eve and, you know, Christmas Day and all that. You're right. And, and you know, Jim, I'm sure, you know, most of your listeners will know that there is this, you know, kind of what psychologists call the holiday syndrome, uh, which is not only bringing up, um, you know, kind of past hurts and past disappointments, but comparing yourself to other people and thinking that everyone else is having the perfect Christmas. You know, I'm the only one with a, a dysfunctional family or I'm the only one who's stuck at home and it really does a number on people. And so you're right, the, the pastors have to kind of deal with the liturgical stuff and the psychological stuff at once. Well, this new chair I have at, at uh, 
Georgetown, which is a place you're very much a part of as well, is named after Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And he taught me the difference between optimism and hope, that they're not the same thing. Uh, optimism is, you know, a, a feeling or, or a mood or a, even a personality type, cup half empty, cup half full. But hope, he taught me, was a, a decision, a choice you make because of this thing called faith. So how do we go beyond? It's hard to have optimism. It was hard for Bishop Tutu to have optimism most days during apartheid because of all the suffering of so many people. And yet he had that twinkle in his eye. He never, he, he always had that sense of hope. But he said it was because of making the choice day in, day out, the choice, the decision uh, that faith allows you to make. So how do we move between optimism, which isn't very, uh, possible as you look at the news this morning or this afternoon to this deeper issue of hope. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And, uh, you know, I think underneath that statement is that uh, the faith is a faith in a person, right? So it's about a relationship. Uh, I think that's really insightful that, yeah, we there are some people that are just cheerful and optimistic. And uh, I don't know if I'm one of them. I don't think I am. Uh, there's a kind of pull towards, you know, the negative sometimes in me. But I do, uh, you know, trust in God. And I know that uh, one of the things that, that I always come back to is, is the resurrection, right? And that you have the disciples uh, in these, you know, closed door rooms uh, on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And they think nothing can happen. Nothing good can happen. And, you know, Easter happens. And I, I, I sometimes encourage people in the Catholic Church to say, oh, nothing can ever happen. Nothing can ever change to look at Pope Francis. And, uh, you know, we have a pope who, I mean, you know, uh, St. John Paul and Benedict were very holy popes and holy men. Uh, Francis is just doing things in a new way, in a different way. And so it, it, it reminds us that, uh, you know, with God, nothing is impossible, that, that things can change and things do move. Um, and I think to, to sort of ground ourselves in the relationship with Jesus is, is the important thing. I mean, as Desmond, which, which is what Desmond Tutu is saying, that it's about faith. You know, your book and myself, I'm just turning around looking at it. It's right in that next to uh, uh, the picture on the back cover of another book of Tom, Thomas Merton. Mm. And Merton said, everything is about relationships, mm. which is true. It's just true. And and that's what Jesus is about, too. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something about the Synod to double back a little bit. Uh, you know, really a beautiful um, retreat that we had that was uh, led by, I know you know him, uh, Father Timothy Radcliffe, uh -huh. uh, the spiritual master and former master general of the Dominicans. And at the beginning of the synod, to that point about um, you know relationships, he said, uh, "What we're doing here at the synod is about friendship, right? And we're building friendships." And he quoted uh, John Paul. I had never heard this before ever. Uh, and John Paul said, "Affective collegiality, so kind of emotional friendship collegiality, precedes effective collegiality." Huh. Interesting. Isn't that great. That's really good. So to be able to talk to people on the other side of any particular issue, you know, either politically or, you know, kind of church related, first, you have to be friends with that person. Uh, and that's really what what the Synod was all about. And you're right. That's what faith is about. It's about it's about a relationship. Uh, so for me, I mean, we're, we're going back to a, a previous topic, but for me, that's what helped to put the Synod in perspective. What we're doing here is building friendships in order that uh, we might be able to have conversations. Well, for me this year, Advent 2023 is also a preparation. It's another word for Advent. Preparation for me in 2024. It's going to be a year mm. 
It's going to be a year. Yes, and I think it's going to be a busy year for Jim Wallace, that's for sure. <laughs> well, and, and a real test, I think, not only of democracy, but also of our faith. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to prepare this Advent for, for this uh, season of 2024. 20, well, let me ask you something, because I know people are going to be interested. You know, when you look ahead, um, you know, without getting too political, but when you look ahead to the threats to democracy and the threats to world peace, um, how do you stay grounded? And, and how, you know, because I think everyone's going to say, well, how does Jim, how is Jim Wallace preparing during Advent? What, what are you doing? Well, I just came back from a retreat of five days, uh, which I needed uh, to, to do. And it was really a, a very important time, much needed. And I'm going to do some more with my boys and Troy and I and Luke and Jack are going to spend some time retreat time. I'm feeling a need for a retreat time during Advent because it's hard to retreat when, as you say, when things are, it's like incoming fire all the time when people mm -hmm. want something. And, and, uh, but we're going to make democracy, uh, the focus, our Georgetown center for faith, faith and justice for the year. And it's really going to be, uh, a, a fundamental focus for us. And I, I think it's trying to bring, you mentioned the politics, the inadequacy of politics uh, is going to be more and more clear. So how do we bring a faith factor into this election season? What's the faith factor? How do we reframe our ancient texts and scriptures uh, to make way for what the real issue, issue here is, uh, the possibility of a genuinely multiracial democracy? And if we don't achieve a multiracial democracy, we're going to lose democracy altogether. So everything is at stake. And for, so for me, it's it's preparation time for that year which lies ahead. And that means, you know, stop talking and just be quiet and, and start listening and just breathing and walking and finding a few people whom talking with can help take you to a deeper place. I did that with a friend who really was my retreat master for the last about five days. So I need to sort of stop all the running around and all the responding and all the politicizing and all this. I do like to do strategy, but we got to go deeper than that. So for me, it's how do we prepare ourselves spiritually uh, and really what a theology of democracy is going to mean for us going forward. Yeah. And I like, as always, your emphasis on faith. And it's a, you know, one of the things I like about the way you present Christianity is that it is a real faith that is not. It is not faith, you know, as debating, right? And debating and who's who's up and who's down. And, you know, during the synod, we were told uh, consistently by Pope Francis, right? This is not, you know, this is not some sort of parliamentary exercise, you know, nothing against, you know, parliaments or democracy, but, you know, it's about something deeper. It's about uh, really connecting with people as brothers and sisters and and not, not uh, approaching issues as, winners and losers, but, you know, can we discern together and can we walk together, which is much harder, right? Amen to that. So my brother, give us, give our listeners here as they're going to listen to this in Advent, give us uh, your benediction for all of us for Advent here. Give us a benediction. Sure. So maybe we can all uh, just take a moment and be quiet for a few seconds and just think about one thing uh, that uh, we are grateful for in our lives. Loving God, we thank you for the gifts we have in our lives. We thank you for the gift of our life itself. We thank you for the gift of the lives of other people, even those we disagree with. As we move towards Advent and focus our attention on Christmas, 
give us that desire to welcome God into our lives in a new way, just like the people in Jesus's life welcomed him. Give us a spirit of hope, ground us in hope and ground us in that relationship with you, Holy One. And we ask this in your holy name. Amen. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.